This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on over 300 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Donnell Rehagen next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Letters, litigation, and legislative hearings surround the Environmental Protection Agency's recently announced plan to reallocate lost renewable fuel demand from small refinery exemptions. National Biodiesel Board CEO Donnell Rehagen says the intent of the renewable fuel standard was to annually see incremental growth of biofuel volumes in the marketplace. Rehagen says it's frustrating to see plants operating at less than two-thirds capacity, providing a product that is well-priced and environmentally beneficial. As the country begins to realize the environmental situation that we're in, uh, there's solutions to that, uh, at least on the transportation fuel side, and biodiesel and renewable diesel fit into that very nicely. So there's a great deal of pull uh, specifically the areas of the country that are the most sensitive, you know, environmentally. And uh, th- those those locations are growing. I mean, we a lot of people would like to think, especially us here in the Midwest, that that's just a West Coast thing. But that's absolutely not the case. Um, you know, we're looking at, at states like uh, Colorado and Minnesota, uh, as well as up and down the eastern seaboard that are pursuing cleaner burning transportation and heating fuels, uh, and biodiesel fits in greatly. The ethanol industry has been somewhat taken back in the fact that the, the rule has been for blending 15 billion gallons. But because of the small refinery exemptions, they've said that 15 billion gallons has not been 15 billion gallons. So from your side of renewable fuel, how have the EPA's granting of these small refinery exemptions, how's that affected you? Well, very similarly to how it's affected the ethanol industry. I mean, our volumes are set... Uh, on the biomass-based diesel side of the equation is set actually over a year in advance. And that, that reason for that uh, was to give our industry a little bit more of a heads-up so that if growth was going to be demanded, we would have the ability to to uh, plan for and execute on those growing volumes. So when those numbers are set for biomass-based diesel, you know, 12, 14, 16 months ahead, and then during that exact year, these small refinery exemptions are granted that just destroys a large portion of that uh, of that demand. You can imagine what it does to uh, the marketplace. It's very unsettling, um, and that uncertainty is what causes uh, the marketplace right now to ho- hardly respond when the EPA sets its annual volumes because now everybody is looking at it like, okay, we see what number they put out there, but until we see what they're going to do with SREs, that number really doesn't matter. And that's what our uh, industry is facing on an annual basis now with this administration. Earlier this spring, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, and he said they're caught from both sides. 
because they had been sued because they were granting the small refinery exemptions, but they were also being sued because they hadn't granted the small refinery exemptions. And he agreed something needed to be done. And this president, not afraid of joining into a fight, got in the middle between big oil and renewable fuel and has looked for a compromise. There was an announcement. How did you feel about that announcement prior to the supplemental? Yeah, well, that announcement out of the White House was a a very important announcement to us. We felt like it was going to restore the integrity of the RFS. Again, those those gallons that are established need to be the gallons that are met. Otherwise, there's no reason to establish the gallons in the first place. And so the president's commitment in that meeting was to um, allow for the gallons that would be granted to small through small refinery exemptions to make their way back into the final volumes. And that was going to be done through a three-year rolling average of actual gallons that were exempted. So we were excited about that because that's really exactly what we've been asking for for a number of years. If you're going to grant small refinery exemptions, that's fine, but those volumes need to go back into the final numbers. That's all we've been saying all along. The one thing that Administrator Wheeler said, though, back in the spring is that he could not and would not reallocate. The President's announcement suggested that there would be reallocation, not over what had been done, but for what would be in the future. That's exactly right. That was one of the things that we communicated to the President, though, is, again, as I mentioned, we're proposing that the EPA is setting volumes 12, 14, 16 months in advance. So short of doing something in this current rule, which is open as we speak, uh, will not be finalized until the end of November, short of doing something about SREs in that rule, for our industry, it would be two to three years before we would see any sort of resolution to that. So uh, the idea of, of this rule being the starting point was a critical point of that agreement uh, negotiated in the Oval Office. So at a cabinet meeting at the White House, the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, suggested that agriculture, the renewable fuel industry, would end up being very satisfied with the effort of this supplemental rule that was proposed by the EPA. What's in the supplemental rule that is bringing controversy for you and the rest of the renewable fuel industry? Well, the biggest issue is that the EPA is proposing to not use the actual gallons that are granted through these small refinery exemptions, and we all can find out what those numbers are. They are instead proposing to use the Department of Energy's recommendation for what the volumes should have been. Now, to put that into some context, the DOE annually looks at all of the small refinery applications and then grants a, a recommendation to the EPA as to whether they should grant full exemptions or partial exemptions or no exemptions. The numbers that we've been able to learn, because this whole process of small refinery exemptions is covered by confidential business information, so it's really hard to learn. But what we have been able to find out is the EPA over the last two years has granted nearly twice as many actual uh, SREs as what the Department of Energy recommended. So you can see why our industry is a little bit suspicious as to why the EPA is proposing to now use a DOE number when they've been ignoring them for a couple of years, other than it's a much smaller number when you start looking at that rolling average. What about an average of the previous three years that you talked about just a minute ago? Well, that's exactly what we talked to the president about in the Oval Office, and that's what we believe he agreed to. So I'm not sure what's happened between that meeting and this supplemental rule where the EPA has taken a different 
look or a different view of how to get to that three-year rolling average. We would suggest use the actual numbers. The real numbers are the real numbers. Nobody's playing any games. Uh, we can all find out what those final uh, exempted gallons were. And then utilize a three-year rolling average of those previous three actual years. Is there still time to see the supplemental rules change? Well, there is. There's a comment period the EPA uh, you know, is required to uh, go through whenever they push a rule out, and the supplemental uh, rule uh, is, uh, is fits that bill. So there's a hearing at the end of October in Ypsilanti, Michigan, so uh, the, the public will have the opportunity to weigh in with the EPA about uh, kind of their thoughts and views on the supplemental rule, uh, and then we'll have to wait for that rule to be finalized. You would expect that you would hear some an analysis and some study from the renewable fuel industry, but you also had the American Farm Bureau Federation chime in on this particular issue as well, uh, pretty well suggesting that the proposal was not up necessarily to the standard. Well, it goes to show you how important this issue is to the agricultural community. This is not just the biodiesel group. This is not, uh, you know, just the ethanol. But you're seeing all of agriculture realizing how important renewable fuels are to uh, to their bottom lines and to their industry as well. And that growing volumes of ethanol and biodiesel and renewable diesel are better for agriculture and better for uh, for the country than to have those volumes being flat. So we're 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 very pleased to see all of agriculture, corn, soybeans, renewable fuels, biodiesel, ethanol, all stepping up and, and making sure the president st- uh, stands up to the promise that he made to help our industries grow. Kevin Ross with the National Corn Growers Association on this program suggested the exemptions over a period of months has cost the corn industry 4 billion gallons of renewable ethanol, which is worth about a billion to a billion and a half bushels of corn. What sort of volume do you feel that biodiesel has lost because of these exemptions? Yeah, just the last uh, couple of years, uh, if we add all of those volumes up, we believe we're somewhere around three-quarters of a billion gallons of lost demand for biodiesel and renewable diesel. And so to put that again into perspective, our annual production here in the country is about uh, somewhere around 2 billion gallons. So to have lost uh, three-quarters of a billion gallons over the last three years is, is a huge shot. At what capacity are biofuel refineries in the country running? Well, again, I can't speak for ethanol, but biodiesel, uh, you know, our producers are right now are running somewhere around 60% of capacity. Uh, we have had some announcements over the last couple of months of some plant closures and some shutdowns uh, as, you know, our industry needed to sort through a number of issues pertaining to the RFS as well as our biodiesel tax credit. And so that uncertainty is really putting our biodiesel producers on their heels. And, you know, the bad news there is if our biodiesel producers aren't demanding soybean oils and other oils, then, uh, you know, it kind of puts a pro- uh, kind of puts it back onto uh, the farmers and the agricultural community. Washington is running on a continuing resolution right now. There will come a day of reckoning of either an omnibus spending bill or another CR. Inside that uh, challenge of coming up with a spending plan is also some proposals on taxes. Any hope of seeing the biodiesel tax credit coming back? And, and how has that affected your industry of not having that leg up from Washington? You know, our industry, this is uh, the end of October of 2019, and our industry has been without that biodiesel tax credit since January 1st of 2018. So we're, we're going up on 24 months. Um, 
The, the biggest challenge there is because that tax credit has been in place since 2005, even though it's been on again, off again, the industry, the downstream industry as well, expects that dollar to come back. And so for the last 18 to 20 months now, our biodiesel producers have had to figure out how to basically foot the bill for that dollar-a-gallon tax credit as the folks downstream are expecting some portion of that, uh, you know, with every gallon that they commit to buying. So that's where, you know, some of our plants have been closing and uh, and scaling back production because the cash flow is just not there uh, to be able to do that over that long of a period of time. And so we do see some light at the end of the tunnel. We know there's opportunities coming up between now and the end of the year with the continuing resolution, as you mentioned, as well as any sort of an omnibus uh, funding bill to have the, our biodiesel tax credit be part of that. And we've been working on this for 20 months now, and so we know that uh, members of Congress have heard from uh, us and our industry for uh, many, many times about this. And so there's there seems to be a commitment to getting this done, but uh, there's still a lot of... Uh, a lot of road to grow here between now and the end of the calendar year. Your industry raised an issue with regard to the amount of uh, subsidized bile diesel produced in Argentina and Indonesia. You proved your case and saw some relief, but recently you had a meeting with Commerce Secretary Ross on this issue. What's ahead? Well, the uh, you know you're correct. We we did see the issues. We went through the legal process, and those duties were applied to those products, uh, biodiesel coming in from Argentina and Indonesia. And the effect of that has basically been to shut off those imports. Uh, they were highly subsidized and highly discounted. And so, once the playing field was leveled, there wasn't a reason uh, you know domestically to look outside of these borders for uh, their biodiesel renewable diesel needs. So, uh, but what we saw was the the government of Argentina petitioned our government about a year ago and said, hey, we've changed some of our rules, we've changed some of our tax structure, we want you to take a look at this again, uh, maybe make an adjustment to those duties. And so our government decided to, uh, to undergo that change circumstances review, and uh, it's coming to a conclusion um, here in the next month probably. But uh, our meeting with, with the Secretary was just to remind him that uh, you know we, we need a confident decision out of this. Our industry depends on this level playing field and anything that would be done to to tilt the table again back towards Argentina uh, would be at the detriment of the domestic industry here. So we're coming into an election year and we're coming toward a race for the White House and renewable fuel was a part of the 16 presidential election. In advance of that vote and the discussion that's going on now, you did a survey of consumers. And my question for you is, are consumers aware of renewable fuel and how do they feel about policies that support it? Yeah, I think consumers are more aware now than ever before. You know, as I've said, uh, there is a strong push, uh, you know, to tr- to knowing that we can do better as a country in our transportation and our heating fuels. We can be cleaner and still get the uh, performance that we need. And so we we see a big push and a lot of support for renewable fuels. And so, you know, that's an important thing to convey to policymakers because it's it's not hard. It should not be hard for them to support an industry like ours uh, when their own constituents back home are saying that they love it and want to see more of it. Can you go into some of the numbers outside of that survey that would suggest that if candidates are looking for rural America or if they're looking for individuals that are concerned about the climate or concerned about sustainability, that this is an avenue that should be uh, should be a part of the agenda? 
Well, it's it's known, you know, a large majority of Americans support cleaner fuels, and uh, that's all the way from electricity to transportation fuels. And so we've seen the growth in wind and solar on the electric side. And so uh, where we have these opportunities, uh, the country needs to step up. And, that, and the good news is on the biodiesel side, those opportunities are here today. This is not a fuel of the future. This is not some pie in the sky. This is a product that's been tested and proven over the last 20 years. Years. And all we need is those signals from, you know, from the market sector, whether those be driven by policy or regulation or whether those be driven by, you know, consumer desires, but to push more of this product out in the marketplace, cleaning up the environment and, and uh, giving us something to, to uh, benefit our agricultural partners on as well. So it's just a, it's just a huge win-win for everybody. Uh, thinking of the election, uh, one of the points of your survey, 86% of respondents indicated that a candidate's position on clean energy was important or very important for their voting preference and 78 percent uh four out of five expressed support for existing federal programs that encouraged increased production and use of advanced biofuels the large majority of americans want and know we can do better as a country um, you know, our cheap, cheap energy and, and effective energy is, is very important to the economy of the country. And so this is nothing to mess around with. But uh, at the same time, I think everyone knows that these are products that, that are out in the marketplace. They've been out in the marketplace. Uh, this is not a stretch for anyone, and we can do better as a country. We can still have our energy, and it can be clean energy. Is it frustrating for you to hear so much talk of climate change and sustainability and to know that you have a renewable product that can be a part of the solution, yet you have to fight on the legislative and the administrative angle of Washington to see success? Yeah, Jeff, you know, that is one of the things we kind of scratch our head at a lot, you know, because there's always so much attention to what's the next best and next greatest thing. And so, you know, that's where we always have to remind people, you know, we're here now. This is a solution that is here today. So, you know, even if you feel like there's a better solution that's down the road, there's research and development that's going to really change the way we, we receive our transportation fuels, that's fine. But in, in the meantime, biodiesel is here now. I mean, we're confident in its ability uh, to do what we promise, and that's to deliver a high-performing and clean burning product to the marketplace. Is there time for a legislative fix for this? Well, there sort of is, right? I mean, the RFS is is a uh, program that, if it were working as it was were intended to, would be pushing higher volumes out into the marketplace, Mar- volumes that are sensitive to the markets of supply and demand and and price. And so, what we really need is just to have the the shackles taken off of the RFS and to allow it to work the way that Congress intended to see it work. You know, and then you add to that the fact that there's uh, states and regions out there who are putting policies in in place of federal policies, saying, well, if those guys aren't going to get it done nationally, we'll, we'll take that job on ourselves. So California has an immensely growing low-carbon fuel standard program that will likely double the volume of renewable fuels in California in the next 10 years. And then you hop over to the East Coast and the heating oil industry, which is a six billion gallon a year industry is looking to be 50 percent renewable uh, by 2030 so there's another three billion gallons of demand for uh, for our product going into uh, into those markets so you're seeing sort of 
regions and states taking the effort onto themselves in the absence of a widespread federal policy. Speaking of the United States, you have offices in Washington, D.C., and then there in Missouri, but you also have opened up shop in California. What is the push in that state that provides you the opportunity for growth? Yeah, California has been a, a very important state for us. They, they generally lead uh, the country when it comes to environmental policy, and their low-carbon fuel standard, their LCFS, has been a huge market driver for probably the last seven or eight years. Um, and we see some exponential growth in that going forward. And not just in California, but we're seeing the same thing in Oregon and Washington, you know, even up into British Columbia when you look at the West Coast uh, of North America. So, you know, we felt like now is the time that we should be there. We should have uh, boots on the ground on a daily basis on the West Coast uh, to make sure that the policies and the regulations that will support growth in our industry um, are going to happen. Donnell Rehagen, no shortage of issues in front of the National Biodiesel Board. Thanks for taking time for us. This is Open Mic, and you have the last word today, sir. Well, Jeff, thanks for, for helping us spread the word. You know, as I've said, it's a wonderful product. It's a wonderful industry that we have. It's been been working hard for 25 years, and we feel like we're just now hitting our, uh, hitting our momentum. And we just need to make sure that our policymakers, both at the federal level as well as the state level, recognize biodiesel is here now. It's a cleaner product. It's a greener product. And uh, more consumers need to have access to it across the country. Our thanks to Donnell Rehagen, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.